We'll continue our study through the book of First Peter, this letter from God through Peter to elect exiles, sojourners, people who are on their way to our homeland, our true home in heaven. He's guarding it for us, and he's got his glory there that he'll share with us forever. First Peter chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or of the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Father, we pray that as we consider your instructions for wives this morning, that all of us would be able to understand your will for our lives, not only for wives, for women, for ladies, for young ladies, older ladies, for young men and older men. We praise you for your word this morning in Jesus' name. Well, if you've been with us the, the last few weeks, we've been talking about a lot of serious things, haven't we? <laughs> uh, Peter's been leading us through some pretty weighty teaching. We're learning what it looks like to be holy as God is holy in all of our conduct, in every station of life. And last week was pretty heavy on suffering and how to glorify God through suffering by following the example of the ultimate sufferer, Jesus himself. But now we've come to family life for husbands and for wives. What does it look like to be holy in my marriage, at home? And as we read this passage, the word that gets repeated here in this passage is the word submit. And some of you went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, maybe we should have skipped this Sunday. (laughs) We're glad you didn't. Not many messages today make people as nervous as a message on marriage where the focus is on wives and the key phrase that's that's continually repeated throughout the message is for wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, What I was tempted to do was to start out by by presenting this and then defending this biblically, you know, why this is important and, and why we talk about this, but something that gets, there's something that gets lost when we do that. In this passage especially, there's something, there's an important lesson that's lost. Um, and, and what that is, is the beauty of holiness in a wife who submits to her husband. You see, when, when we kind of go back on our heels and start defending and start going, you know, here's the apology for why this is what it says and, and here's what it really means, uh, we can lose the tenor of this passage and, and the beauty of holiness in a wife who's living for the glory of her God by submitting to her husband. This passage follows the previous passages on the beauty of holiness in each of our stations of life, which is exemplified in love. It starts with love and it's continued in love. And it's lived out in submission to the authority that God has placed over us. All of us, men and women, are placed under the authority of the government that God has placed over us. And holiness in love to the Lord is lived out in submission to that government. There's beauty when we live that way. 
It brings glory to God. Part of bringing glory to God that way in government is, is his will of silencing the ignorance of foolish people, Peter tells us. That's God's will, and that's beautiful when we live that way. When we work for someone, whether they're awful to us or very good to us, we submit to them in love and, and a healthy fear, not wanting to displease them. And that's holiness in love to the Lord. And in God's eyes, that's a gracious thing. That's, that's commendable because we're trusting Him and we're enduring even as we suffer unjustly if He calls us to that. It's also beautiful, as we saw last week, to follow in the footsteps of the ultimate sufferer, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that's not something that comes naturally to us to, to say, well, if I'm going to suffer and it's going to be unjust, then I'm going to endure and I'm going to be mindful of God and I'm going to be praising Him. That, that doesn't come naturally, but it's a beautiful thing that God brings life out of death. He brings holiness out of sinfulness and, and it glorifies Him. Well, in this passage here this morning, what's beautiful is a wife living a holy life in submission to her husband. It's also not something it's natural, is it? Yeah, this is not a natural thing. It, it's not normal. What's ordinary and what's expected is when a wife reads this or when people are together and they read this is for a wife to scoff, <laughs> right? Submit to my husband. That's the inheritance that we have as the consequence of sin, part of the sinful curse that's upon all of us. We're all affected by it. For women in particular, Genesis 3.16 says that it's not just a greater uh, pain in childbirth. It's also a desire that runs against, over and against, or contrary to her husband. And so ordinarily what will happen is that wives will want to take a lead in the relationship. She'll want to be the head of the family, but the husband has been tasked with that responsibility by God. And what also happens, especially in our culture, is that men will all too often yield that responsibility because the wife is so ready to take it on. But what we're learning about is holiness and distinctness. That's what holiness means, right? It's something that's different. It's separate. What's been set apart, what's beautiful and holy is a wife who embraces submission to her husband as an act that she does and carries out for the sake of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's holiness. That's what's completely different and not natural. The common problem begins with a misunderstanding for us of what submission means, what it is, right? See, as we looked at government, we understood that, well, you know, there's a government in place, and if I don't obey, then I get in trouble, right? I grasp it readily enough that nobody in government's better than me. We grasp that really well, right? Nobody in government is better than me. We're all created equal in value, but I submit to that government. We understand it at work. Uh, at work, I've got a boss. The boss is not better than me. I'm not better than my boss. We have roles to fulfill at work for the sake of order and getting the job done. We get that at government, and we get that at work. But for some reason, when we get to this passage and we hear submit for wives to husbands, walls go up, bells start ringing, right? Teeth get set on edge and... You know, maybe I need to <laughs> pick up my stuff and, and walk out. But really, the word hasn't changed in meaning in this whole section. It, it hasn't suddenly become all about a man's superiority over a woman. It, it's suddenly not all about a, a lesser value of a, of a place for a woman. It, it's submission that means the same thing that's meant the whole time. A, a wife who sub voluntarily arranges herself under the authority of her husband before God in the beauty of holiness. 
And so as we talk about this, there's no distinction in value. There's no priority of importance. There's no elevation of significance. A man and a woman are both created by God in his image together equally. But he did create Adam to be the head of the home. He charged him with those responsibilities. And when he created Eve, he created her with the responsibilities of helping Adam with those responsibilities. You know, when we think about government, we think, well, my role is to submit. I, I don't get to pass new laws. I don't get to enforce the laws. I don't get to, to judge anybody else for that. My position before the government is to submit. And if I have an opportunity to, to voice my opinion, then I do that, right? But what's going to happen is that God's going to hold me accountable for how I submit to the government, how and whether I submit to the government. And he's also going to hold the, government, the people in government accountable for how they did in ruling the people. Submission in marriage works similarly. Not the same, but similarly. God has tasked the man with being the one accountable for the marriage and the family. And God will hold him accountable and responsible for how he did, or whether he did, lead that family. God will also hold the wife accountable for how or whether she submitted to her husband's authority. So, so what's the big hang-up? What, what's the big concern that we have with this, right? I mean, to this point, we're, we're okay, I yeah, I can track with that. But what's the big thing that comes up, the biggest hindrance for us, aside from the curse of sin and, and the desires that we have in our minds and hearts, it's been the mistreatment of women throughout history. See, women for the majority, the vast majority of history in mankind have been mistreated as not equal with men. They have been viewed as property. They've been slaves. They've been a lower class. They've been lesser in value and unworthy to be compared to men. That's a big problem for a lot of us, isn't it? That was wrong for that to happen. They've been abused. They've been taken advantage of. They've been ravaged and beaten and killed by men, all with little to no justice for them. They've just been made forcibly to submit through abuse or torture or death. And as we said, all of that is outright, direct, rebellious sin against God and against the creator God of women who made them as equal with men in his image, in value and significance and intelligence and in every way equal yet different. All of that will be judged rightly by the great God of justice. And as we read in Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But all of that stuff, all of that abuse and sin and, and, and all the terrible things that have happened have nothing to do with what God calls for wives to do here to submit to their husbands. So before anybody checks out and says, I'm not listening to this, <laughs> or tries to head for the doors, let's find out what God says in his word. Let's listen to what he says and not what culture says about a husband and wife relationship. Now, husbands, this section is for wives, but there will be application for us as well. So pay attention because this matters to you. Plus, next week we're going to look at husbands and the wives will be interested in that and, and they'll learn from that as well. Also, we need to make sure that we understand that this is not only for married people. If you're a single lady, this passage is still applicable. As we consider the beauty of holiness that begins within what God considers to be beautiful. Even if you don't have a husband, whether you're looking for one or not, this passage will hold up what true beauty looks like in God's eyes. Single men, here is an explanation of what a godly lady should look like. What kind of lady that you should find attractive 
Uh, Don't fall for what the world finds attractive only. This is the kind of lady to be interested in and what the ladies can aspire to. Now, one thing, one more thing that you may have noticed here as we read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, you'll notice that there is only one verse, verse 7, for the husbands. And that has caused some people to stumble. <laughs> so I thought about, well, why would, why would Peter have done that? Why would God have done this through Peter? I thought of three possible reasons why the wives have six times as many verses as the husbands do for their responsibilities. The first reason that I came up with, this is not thus saith the Lord, so if you don't agree with this, that's okay. The first reason is that, really, when you're talking to men overall, you need to boil it down to make it as simple as possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> give me what I need to know so I can remember it and do it, right? For the ladies, it needs, it's helpful to be a little bit more expressive, a little bit more explanatory, and, and that's, that's helpful. So I think maybe that's one reason why the wives have more words written for them in these verses. A second reason is that possibly this requires more explanation that's required because of the past history of sin in mankind where women are just told to obey. Just do what I say, and if you don't, I'll make you obey, right? This in the Scriptures is not that. And so this requires a little bit more explanation of, of what it looks like for a, life to, a wife to live in holiness and submission to her husband when it's not obey or else. A third possible reason is that it may be that a wife's daily responsibility of submitting is more difficult than a husband's. Now, I want to recognize the fact that a husband's responsibility as head, as final decision maker, is going to be difficult. It is difficult. And knowing that one day you're going to answer to God for how those decisions went and what you did or didn't do, um, that's a very serious responsibility. But day to day, There are a lot of lines that wives need to be careful of crossing, lines between manipulating or controlling or helping, right? Um, Lines between just giving in and acquiescing and and being paralyzed by fear or actually submitting in love. So there are a lot of lines that can be difficult. So I think maybe those are three possible reasons why Peter gives us more for the, the ladies, the wives, than for the men. But Peter begins this instruction for the the family, our stations in life, in marriage. And as we said, he considered government and work, and now he's there with a family. So he says, likewise, continuing this train of thought. Likewise, here's holiness. And he begins with wives and the instruction to submit. And again, it's the same word. Voluntarily arrange yourself under the authority, the God-given authority of your husband. Now, verse 1 here, husbands, I'd like you to notice your role. You don't have one, right? There's no role for husbands here. We'll get to our responsibilities later, but we don't have a responsibility to arrange our wife under our authority. (laughs) There's no responsibility here for us to be the submission coordinator, right? The submission enforcer. Uh, there's, there's no submission punisher if your wife does not submit. This is all for the wives that are called to arrange themselves under the authority of their husband. Now, husbands, if you are fulfilling your responsibilities in a loving way, it's going to make her job a lot easier to do that, right? But you are not to force this or demand this. This is an instruction directed to wives, not to husbands. And so, wives, we see this instruction, submit to husband. But that can sting a little bit for modern, modern women. 
it kind of rings in our mind. Women should not have to submit to men. But I want us to make sure that we call that out because that's not what Peter says. That's not what God says here, right? He doesn't say women submit to men. God in the Bible tells wives to submit to their own husbands. It's, it's explicit here. It's spelled out very clearly. To your own husband. Uh, God doesn't call women to be lower than men. He doesn't call wives to be lower than their husbands. He calls them to submit in love to him. So don't fall for the lie, ladies, that a Christian wife who submits to her husband has let down her gender <laughs> or surrendered, to, uh, surrendered the cause of feminism, right? Feminism is a, is a touchy subject. Um, it means different things to different people. It's a very nebulous movement. If you're thinking of feminism as the way that women achieved equal rights with men after horrible mistreatment, that's a good thing. That was beneficial. But everything else that goes along with feminism, including uh, control over your own body so that you can murder an unborn baby, or taking the pendulum and swinging it so that instead of men being superior over women, now women are superior over men and independent from one another and, and all of those things that go along with feminism and reinterpreting the scripture, all of that we throw out, we reject as ungodly and unbiblical. But keep yourself away from the lies that the culture would feed you. Submitting to your husband is not surrendering your value or your dignity or your personhood. God has appointed the husband to answer for the family and he's appointed the wife to submit to him in an arrangement of order that brings him glory. The most helpful illustration that I found for this is God himself, the Trinity. There are three persons in our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person, even though we can't fully wrap our minds around this, each person in the one God is co-eternal, co-equal, God of God, God and God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Each person is just as much God as the other, right? And yet each person has a distinct role in creation and redemption. And in the case of redemption, the Father elected, the Son redeemed, and the Holy Spirit regenerates. The Son submitted to the Father, the Holy Spirit uh, brings about salvation in our hearts and minds. God sent the Son, the Son doesn't send the Father, the, the Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. And so even though God is just one in himself, <laughs> and he's completely God, and there's no less God in any person, each person has a role to play in redemption and creation and order. That's how a marriage operates. The husband and wife are co-equal in significance and in worth and in value and dignity, but the wife voluntarily submits to her husband. And so Peter gives us four parts to this instruction for wives. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see number 1, this instruction for wives to engage the power of submission. So, so number 1, engage the power of submission. Now, what we mean by that is not that concept of subversive manipulation, right? Like, yes, my husband wears the pants in the family, but I tell him which ones to put on, right? <laughs> this isn't like wink, wink, right? You know, submit wives, even though we know you're really the ones in charge. That, that's not what we mean by the power of submission. What Peter explains here is the powerful influence of submission in others' lives beginning in their husbands. This is an amazing, expansive power. How expansive is it? Peter gives an extreme example. 
He says here, even if, be subject to your own husband so much, so completely, so strangely and in a holy way, so that even if you're married to a man who is disobedient to the word, he may be won over by you. The example is of a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. Now, this should only really happen for a married couple who are both unbelievers at, at to begin with, and then she becomes a believer, or they, were, they both believed themselves to be believers, and then he walked away, or, or she walks away. So that's the only time this should really happen. Um, Christians should not be marrying unchristians, um, not because we're better, but because that doesn't work in God's order of the marriage. So, but it's important here that we see that this is an extreme example, because it's not just that the man isn't a believer. This word disobeys the word is a strong word. It doesn't mean apathy toward the church, like, I don't care, you can go, but, you know, I wouldn't waste my time. This is an animosity toward church. I don't want to hear it. I don't want any part of that. Keep it away from me. That's what kind of husband Peter is giving in the example that Peter gives. It's not apathy, it's animosity. Um, Stay away from me with that stuff, right? So even if that happens... Uh, the wife will live a holy life, submitting even to him, and he will be won over. How is this powerful? Well, the cultures behind this were very powerful. The, the thinking, the prevailing thinking at the time is important for us to understand. And there were three main cultural influences that had power in the thoughts at the time. There was the Greek influence. And the Greek influence was that the duty of women was to remain indoors and obey her husband. That's it. That's all you needed to do. The, a, good, a sign of a good woman, in fact, was to be seen as little, heard as little, and to ask as little as possible. That was the Greek idea of a good wife, a good woman. For the Romans, women had no rights. They were forever a child. When she was born to her father, her father had every responsibility for her, including the decision for either life or death. He could take her life if he so chose. When she got married, that power transferred to her husband, so she still had no rights. She had no ability to make any decisions for herself. She was completely at his mercy. The Jewish culture is the third one. There was the Greek, the Roman, now the Jewish culture. The, the, the position of the wife was elevated in the Jewish culture, but still lower than her husband. It's not a joke that Jewish men came to pray every day a a prayer of thanksgiving that they were not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. They they prayed that prayer daily. So you have these cultural influences, whether it's Greek, Roman, or Jewish, and and, and all of the prevailing cultural ideas of, of the value and worth of a woman, and now you've got this wife who has chosen to follow Christ for herself. It's culturally, this is, this is seen as a complete disregard and a disrespect for her husband and for society, and, and, and she's tearing apart the fabric of society itself. <laughs> this is a big deal in these cultures, that a wife would do this. You, you could be divorced or beaten or, or worse, killed for deciding your own religion as a wife. It brings a fear for husbands, that their wives are, are trying to follow a false god, they're, they're trying to push his authority away, and they're bringing shame and persecution from the neighbors, from civilization, from government. So these are very powerful cultural influences that are in place, but the power of the wife's submission overcomes all of that. 
This is the power that we're talking about here. The Christian wife desiring holiness to God in love for the sake of her God wins over her adamantly Christ-rejecting husband by living in submission to him. And she does it without a word. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't constantly preach at him, you know, I'm shouting the name of Jesus over you or something, you know. She's not constantly doing those things. And, and eventually, yes, she will have to share the gospel with him. She will have to use words. But it's the power of her submission and holiness that so impresses her husband that he abandons any idea of her rebellion or trying to tear apart society. It's her conduct, he's, Peter says here. It's the same word we saw in chapter 1, verse 15, be holy in all of our conduct, our way of life. It's her new way of life that commands his attention as he watches her. Verse 2 says he sees her. He's observing her. He really starts to notice his wife. Wow, what's, what's happening here? Because no longer is she obeying because she's like a slave. She's made to, and she's just resigned to her position in life in misery, so she just goes about her daily work. No longer does she do that. Now she's a child of God with an eternal home that he has prepared for her, with a Savior who loves her, who died for her, and, and it doesn't make sense to him the hope that she has the peace that she lives with, she happily submits to any authority that God has placed over her in the meantime. It it just doesn't make sense. And he starts to wonder and he watches and he observes and he's impressed by this. Look at her conduct of holiness at the end of verse 2. In this extreme example, her disobedient husband sees her respectful and pure conduct. Respectful is the word fear, not fear of life, fear of safety. That's not what Peter is saying, but, the, but that respectful fear, the, the, the same that we see for our, our supervisor, our boss at work. I don't want to disappoint the one who's over me, the one that I've submitted to. And so this is, this is something that begins in the heart, um, a, a reverence and, and a fear and a, and a respect from the heart so that it's not forced and it's not brought about by fear, it's brought about by her love. Pure means chaste and innocent. It's without blemish. In all her conduct, in every way, she is blameless. She's not falling for gossip, right? She's not getting around with the other ladies and, and husband bashing or children trashing or, you know, any of those things that, that happen in culture. She's not reading or watching Fifty Shades of Anything, right? <laughs> she's not drinking away her sorrows. Her life is holy. She's pure, and chaste, and holy, and it looks like submitting to her husband. See, the power that she has is enough to overcome a forceful rejection of the gospel, if God allows that. That's an enormous amount of power to change the heart and mind of a stubborn man, isn't it? If that's the case for a woman married to an unbelieving, forcefully unbelieving man, certainly there is power in influencing a believing husband. And so Peter gives this extreme example because if there's power to change him, certainly there's power to influence and win over a believing husband so that he's moved to Christ as well. And if this was true then, it's just as true now because a husband in today's culture would be shocked to see a wife submitting in this way, wouldn't he? For different reasons, but it would still be noticed. It would still be a surprise to see this. When Peter says that they may be one, He's not talking about a prize, you know, like, well, you've got drawn randomly, and here's your prize, you won. The word here is actually the the earnings of work performed. It's profit from your work. It's going to take work. 
This is going to be hard labor for a wife to do this. But if the Lord moves in his heart, it will be because of watching his wife and, and the diligence that she's put forth in submitting to him for the glory of her Savior. But that's the important part we need to see. And we need to make sure that we don't miss that part. Remember at the beginning of this section, this be subject to, in chapter 2, verse 13, for whose sake are we subject to these people that are in authority over us? Be subject for the Lord's sake. It's not for your husband's sake. Wives, your husband will never deserve for you to submit to him. He's never going to be able to be good enough. He's never going to be able to, to earn the right to say, wife, submit to me. This is not something that he's going to be able to, to bring about in your life. He's your equal. <laughs> the two of you are equal before God in value and worth. He is a sinner, incapable of living perfectly. But what motivates you and what strives, what works in you to strive for this is not him. It's for the Lord's sake. It's the same idea that we saw in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that the world is watching us and they're slandering us, you crazy Christians. You know, you're telling wives to submit to their husbands. You're telling women what to do with their own bodies and, and all of the evil that they say. You know, you're teaching your kids in, you know, creation instead of the truth of science and evolution. And, and so they slander us. But when they see our good deeds, when God brings them the opportunity to believe the gospel, that's the day of visitation, they glorify God. They repent and they believe. It's our deeds of holiness that change people's minds about the gospel, about Jesus. Our holiness argues more loudly than any kind of apologetic or formula that we can invent or concoct. It's holiness that reveals the work of God in a person that's inexplicable any other way. There's no explanation for why you would be holy other than God working in you. It, it impresses the world. It, it impresses those you live with. It convicts unbelievers. It encourages and motivates the believers you live with. But what they become impressed with is not you, but the God working in you and enabling what you can't do. <clears throat> so we've got some verses from Paul in our notes, 1 Thessalonians and Philippians and Colossians, that remind us about how the world is watching us. <clears throat> but this is why we place such an emphasis on holiness here in our preaching because God does, because, because the Bible does. And in fact, if I can say it this way to us, <clears throat> excuse me, holiness is even prioritized over evangelism. You say, wait a minute, what? <laughs> How can you say that? Well, listen, who's going to listen to you if, you have to, if you're going to have anything to say to somebody about the power of Jesus, the power of the gospel in your life, if your life isn't any different? From anybody that doesn't have it. And so this is not just uh, prioritized over evangelism. This is actually part of how we make disciples. Th this is a, a required part of it. All of us are to be making disciples of those all around us by our lives first because that speaks louder than the words that we share. Then we're enabled to share the gospel in words. So wives... This is part of you making disciples of your husbands. Engage that power in your marriage. You're helping to make a disciple of your husband. If you're married to an unbeliever, it can win him over to following Christ if the Lord works in his heart. It may never happen. But even if you have a husband like that, you can overcome his rejection. 
And if you can do it for an unbeliever, if it can go that far, it can definitely go towards your believing husband, helping him, helping to be, helping him to be a disciple. That's power in submission. Number two, Peter tells us in verses three and four that we need to elevate for our wives, elevate your priority on inner beauty. Our priority is on inner beauty. Inherent here in the verses is the reality of a wife's beauty to her husband. God designed it that way, right? He designed for a wife to be beautiful to her husband. For a husband, the the height of beauty should be in his eyes, his wife. Now, we're not talking about women being an object that we gawk at and and that we treat as less than a human being, but, but God made women beautiful to men. And the height of beauty and attractiveness, again, for any husband, should be his wife. So God says through Peter that the adorning of a wife's beauty should not be external only, but internal. You know, spending all your energy on the outside, doing nothing about the heart, that's the wrong focus. The beauty of the outside is fading. You know, with every day that passes, a new wrinkle comes, right? A a new gray hair appears. Age comes, it affects the outside of our bodies. But the inward beauty of a person in their spirit never fades. It's imperishable. It never dies. In fact, it gets more beautiful as we walk with the Lord. We grow more beautiful inside. It's the person inside that lives eternally that God will bring home to be with him. What does that look like for a wife? Well, Peter says it's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle is meek. It's kind. It's mild and, and forgiving and benevolent. Not asserting, you know, demanding my way. Quiet means peaceful. It's, it's, an, it's an attitude and existence of, of peacefulness and, and quiet. Not nagging, not fighting, um, not arguing about things. Really, these two words are two sides of our conduct. It's our action and it's our reaction. Um, The quiet is the action, not starting arguments, not fighting and quarreling over everything, not not gossiping or tearing down. The, uh, The reaction is the gentleness, the meekness, not fighting back when you're not treated right or when you don't get what you want. You know, our initial reaction when someone says something to us mean is to say something mean back, right? Um, You know, I need to stand up for myself. You know, how dare that person say that? But Peter's going to tell all of us, look at chapter 3 here, verse 9. He says this to all of us, to return reviling with blessing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So when your husband is short with you, when, when he says something that you could take personally, I, I've, I've done this myself. I, I've, I've been that way. I've snapped at my wife, and then she says something kind, and it just stops me in my tracks. <laughs> I go, wow, uh, I need to apologize for that. I need to check myself there, right? We always tell our kids it takes two people to fight. One, one of you can be loving the Lord more than yourself, and, and loving and being patient and kind and gentle with the other rather than standing up for myself and defending myself. This is what the quiet, gentle spirit looks like. You have Proverbs 19, verses about a wife's quarreling and, and, and uh, dripping of rain. You've also got Proverbs that talk about husbands uh, and their laziness. <laughs> so, so again, um, you know, wives should not be nagging or fighting or gossiping. Husbands 
should be fulfilling their responsibilities as well and not falling into laziness. But this is the idea of beauty here. And, and I spoke with a woman. We were friends with a couple. And I was speaking to the wife one day. And she was telling me about the ridiculousness of the Bible. Because of this passage and another passage like it. Because she braided her hair. You know, she, she liked to braid her hair. And she wore a ring and she wore earrings. She wore jewelry. So she said, this is, you know, it's just crazy. that I'm, The Bible says I'm not supposed to do that. But we had to talk about... That's not what God says here, <laughs> that you can't braid your hair, you can't do your hair or wear jewelry. How do we know that? Well, because there's actually not a word that clarifies the clothing here. So he says the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, and the putting on of clothing. So if we're going to say that Peter says you can't braid your hair, and if we're saying that Peter says you can't wear jewelry, then we also have to say that he's telling women not to wear clothing. And you know, some of you husbands are like, well, <laughs> no. That's not what God is saying. (laughs) That's not God's instruction for women here. What God's referring to here is the height and the summary of your beauty. Where are all of your energies going to? What's the substance of your beauty? Is it only outward or is it inward? What God says in this letter is to wives is don't be like Hollywood, (laughs) right? The world's high point of supreme beauty, all glitter and no substance. And I don't mean to judge all celebrities, you know, everybody in Hollywood, I don't mean that, but, but this, that sort of stereotype of Hollywood, that it's all on the external and there's nothing inside, there's nothing within. That was the same stereotype that, that people had for women at the time. The, the wealthier a woman was, the more well-known she was, the more she caked on the makeup, the more gaudy her jewelry was. And it was a signal to all, not only that she was wealthy and that she was famous, but she was unchaste. She, she was not faithful to her husband. She was only out for herself. And so Peter, as he delivers God's message to us, is, is not giving us an injunction against dressing nicely or wearing jewelry or, or doing your hair. This is a teaching that the outward reflects the inward, right? Where's our priority? What does the way that I'm dressing say about who I am, who my Lord is? Christian women should not be consumed with trying to attain that perfect image. There's not a perfect image, even though the culture would like to force it down us and try to remind us and try to teach us that you need to attain to this external standard of beauty because that's not it. Wives don't fall for that temptation. That's the wrong focus. Be excited and be thankful for who God made you to be, and your husband will be as well. You can also give the wrong impression by not keeping yourself, right? And just completely letting yourself go. Men and women can do the same thing. Um, you know, well, God will just take whatever I give him. You know, that, that's the wrong focus as well, right? The, the priority needs to be on the inner person far and above the outer person. The idea that, that we're after here is, um, who am I trying to please? Who, who am I trying to please And a wife does have an element of wanting to please her husband, but more than that, her priority is on pleasing the Lord. Did you see that in verse 4? He says, in God's sight, this is very precious. Husbands, did you hear that? In God's sight, your wife's spirit is very precious. She is very precious to him. He's entrusted her care to you. 
to lead her and to care for her. Not, not as a father or daughter, not as a master or slave, but as a husband and wife. So husbands, we need to be careful because she is very precious to him. But a wife's aim is in pleasing her heavenly father, not the world. That's the express idea here. We're not out there trying to please the world. Think about this from God's perspective. Because the world sees a wife submitting to her husband as shameful and harmful and weak and oppressive. It's just wrong to the world. But God views it as clear beauty and evidence of a heart longing for his glory. We know from 1 Samuel 16 that the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks on the heart. So yes, women, you can look nice. You can braid your hair. You can wear jewelry. But if you had to choose between a flashy new dress or a book that helped you to become more like Christ, if you had to choose, choose the book, right? If you had to choose between spending time with other believers, Titus 2, getting with an older woman to help you and instruct you with what a a godly wife looks like, if you had to choose between that and your nail appointment, reschedule the nails, (laughs) right? The, The priority is on the inside, the adorning You've got verses in your notes for Matthew 23, for Proverbs 11, for Isaiah 3, and you can read about the outward adornment and um, how little it does for the inside. We won't go into those. We don't have the time this morning, but there is great beauty in God's sight for a wife who is adorning herself from the inside with submission to her husband, with a desire to please God. So wives, engage that power of submission and elevate your priority on your inner beauty over your outer beauty. There's a third part to our instructions for wives in verses 5 and 6. Wives, emulate the pattern of submissive beauty. Emulate the pattern that's been set for us. You know, Peter, Peter set up the perfect example of Jesus for what it looks like to suffer and be holy. But when Jesus was here, he wasn't married, so he didn't set the perfect example for a wife or for how to live as a husband, although his love for the church is going to be our husband's model for how to love their wives. So Peter turns to the Old Testament. He says, look, we've got many examples for us to follow. He turns our attention to the Old Testament by the plural women, not just one woman. He says, look at the women who used to adorn themselves. Now, he doesn't say, look at every woman in the Old Testament. <laughs> there, were, there were some bad examples. But the holy women who hoped in God. The reason is because, again, obedience was demanded of every woman culturally, but this voluntary arranging of herself was, was something that was completely different. And it was a new pattern that was being set. That was the pattern for holy women that was in the Old Testament and that's held up for wives to emulate now. He says, look at the Old Testament, at those women who were holy and who hoped in God. Notice again, especially that these women did not live with their hope placed in their husbands, right? Their hope was not in their husband that that he would reward them or, or that they would get something out of it. Their adorning and submitting their husbands was not in their own strength, and it was not in the hope of anything here. It was in the hope that they had in God all by themselves, (laughs) These, these were women who were people that, who were equal before God and hoped in God themselves. And their beauty, 
that began in hope in God was expressed by submitting themselves to their own husbands. That's how they adorn themselves. So it's an active work in our heart, growing in that pure and quiet spirit. How does this work itself out practically? Wives, we need to say here, don't look for reasons to submit to your husband. <laughs> Again, he cannot live up to that standard. He, he's not able to earn that from you. But the reason for submitting is glorifying God, the one that you hope in, not for the sake of your husband. This is going to sound strange, but wives, our application in a few minutes is not going to be work on submitting to your husband. That's not what we're going to say here. You know, you need to start working on submitting to your husband. What we need to work on is being more what God has called us to be, hoping more in God, listening to what He has said, and when you do that, you'll find yourself submitting more to your husband. But then Peter does give us, in verse 6, one specific example. He says it's a little nebulous, you know, you might, you might look around and not quite know where to look. So he says, look at Sarah, Abraham's wife. <clears throat> now, if you're not familiar with Abraham and Sarah, they had quite an adventure together in the Old Testament, didn't they? They went through a lot of strange things. When, when we meet them in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah are married, and he's 75 years old, and he's rich. They've got family all around them, things are good. Suddenly, Abraham says, Sarah, uh, God says, we've got to move. She says, where? He says, I don't know. It's that way. <clears throat> Why are we going to move? Because God said so. So she follows him. And, and they leave their comfortable home with their family all around them. They go to the land of Canaan. This is where God wants us. And she looks around and there are people already living in this land. People already own this land. Yeah, but this is it. God said this is it. And then as they lived there, there was a famine that comes upon the promised land. And there may have been a temptation in her mind to say, some promised land, right? There's a famine here. They have to move down to Egypt. She follows. She submits to Abraham all the way. When they get to Egypt, he tells her to tell everybody that they're brother and sister, right? Why did he do that? Because Genesis 12, 11 says she was beautiful in appearance. So again, in this example that's held up as a holy woman, it's not wrong to be beautiful on the outside, right? It's not wrong to look nice on the outside, even though the focus is inward. So Pharaoh takes her, and Abraham gets to keep his life, and he seems to get rich off of the deal until God reveals it to Pharaoh, and he gives her back, and they have to move again. And she's submitting to Abraham all the way. When they get back to the promised land, Abraham goes off like he's, you know, Dwayne Johnson or something, like in this war <laughs> against these four kings that just beat up five kings, right? I mean, and they've come, and they've taken away all of the property. They've taken a lot, and he just runs off into this battle. It was crazy. He came back victorious, praise God, but she's supporting and submitting to him. God tells Abraham then, you're going to have land and seed and blessing. You're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And it almost seems cruel because they can't have kids yet, but she follows. In a show of support, she gives her maidservant to him. They have a kid together. And then she knows without a doubt the reason they can't have kids is because of her, but she stays she submits. Later on, Abraham is 99 years old. God comes to visit him and says, you're going to have a child a year from now. That'll make Abraham 100 years old. That'll make Sarah 90 years old. And she's, she's there in the tent. She's overhearing this, and she laughs to herself. She doesn't want to get her hopes up. She says in Genesis 18, after I am worn out 
and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. That's the only place we actually have it recorded where she calls him my Lord. Peter says that it was apparently something that she regularly did. But even in that difficult-to-believe situation, as she's being real with the circumstances, they're not young, right? (laughs) Even in that moment, she voices respect for Abraham, her husband. Now, Hebrews 11, 11, we we call Hebrews 11 the hall of faith, right? Because it's all of the faith of the people in God. Hebrews 11, 11 holds Sarah up as an example of faith in God that acts. It says, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who promised. God made the promise. God's going to keep the promise, so she believed. And her faith is held up as an example for all of us So even if she had a moment of weakness, even if there was a moment of weakness in Genesis 18, not only did her faith prevail over doubt, her submission to her husband didn't waver either. She obeyed Abraham, Peter says, because of her hope in God. Even after all the crazy things that had happened and the crazy stuff that he had done and made her do, all the, you know, the places they had to move, all of those, all of those things, her trust was in God and in his promise. And that's where we finish as well. Number four, finally, in verse six, wives embrace the promise for submissive beauty. There's a promise here. Peter says, you are her children, but it's a conditional one. You are her, her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, now, what does this promise mean, you are her children? Well, it's similar to what Paul says about Abraham in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the condition for being a son of Abraham is to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had in God. And Peter essentially teaches the same thing here for wives. Sarah was a holy woman who hoped in God. It was expressed outwardly in submission, but you wives show yourselves to be the same kind of holy women with that same kind of faith and hope in God when outwardly you express submission to your husband. That's the continuing thought of doing good. It's, it's your goodness in all your conduct, holiness, that's beautiful before the Lord. If that's true, you're showing yourself to be a daughter of Sarah, a child of faith, a child of God. The other part of the condition that reveals faith addresses the opposite of faith, the fear. What do you fear? Wives, what are you afraid of? We can, we can have some fear well up within us. Peter doesn't spell out anything in particular, but as fear is the opposite of faith and it'll hinder us from faithful obedience, what kind of fears do you feel about this? What is it that would stop you? What would the world think? What would the world say? You know, what, what would they say about me? What would my husband start doing if I submitted to him? Would he walk all over me? You know, I'm not going to be treated very well. I won't be seen as important. Those fears that well up within us, Peter says, we're not, we're not living in fear of that. We're not fearing those things that are frightening. We're not worried about that. We're doing what God tells us to do. He tells wives to submit and not be scared of submitting to your husband because you're not bowing to your husband, right? You're submitting to him as you bow to God. And as he bows to God, that's what we're after. That's what we're hoping and praying for. If you suffer for it, well, that's the example that Jesus provided, suffering while doing good. 
This is the beauty of submitting. This is, this is beauty for the Lord's sake and for His glory. So our application from these verses and, and what do we do with this? And as wives, we're going to address us first. Not us, I'm not a wife, but wives first in application. Submit for the Lord's sake. Submit to your husband for the Lord's sake. And I don't mean, you know, like for God's sake, <laughs> submit. This is just because that's, that's the motivation. That's what we're after. It's for our Lord's sake. Adorn yourself with inner beauty. That inner beauty that, that's pleasing to God, that, that He notices, that He commends, that strikes your husband with a challenge to his sanctification. It says, wow. Wives, study the patterns of faithfulness to follow. Those patterns of faithfulness in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, to follow those as you hope in the Lord without fear. There's, there should not be fear here. If there is fear of your safety, if there is fear for your life, do get out of that. We're not calling for women to be beaten or killed. Perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. So for wives, we're submitting, we're, we're adorning ourselves, and we're following these patterns. For husbands, if you see this in your wife, you need to thank God. And you need to encourage her. Because she's doing what's impossible for her to do on her own. The Lord is working in her, and she's, she's submitting to the Lord first, and bowing to Him, and then submitting to you because of her love for God. So thank God for that, and encourage her if you see that. And next week, there'll be a lot more for us husbands. I, I hope that this has been helpful, and I hope that this has been beneficial to us in understanding what this looks like, what this means. Um, we're going to spend some time over the next couple of weeks getting a little bit closer into family and, and what it looks like, how it works itself out. But Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. He is the living word. And God, he lived perfectly, not just giving us an example, but redeeming us from sin. God, saving us from the consequences of our sin. Father, we praise you for him. We thank you. Father, we believe in him and we proclaim his death. God, we also proclaim his resurrection because in him rising from the dead, he conquered death and he conquered sin. Father, we pray that you would help us to live for him by his empowering in us. God, that you would make us conformed to his image. Father, for wives, that they would be encouraged by your word to see, Lord, that they are submitting not for their own sake, not for the sake of their husband, but God, for your sake, to please and glorify you. Father, we pray for husbands, that they would make that job easier for their wives. Lord, we can't live up to a standard that would earn or deserve that, but God, we can we can love you. We can grow in our love for you and for our wives. So, Father, I pray that you would work that out in each of us. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified by the changes that happen in our life as you work in us. Give us the opportunities to share this hope, this truth, this love with those around us. Let it begin, God, by a changed life for you. We ask this and we celebrate your son in his name. Amen.